Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Dilton. Did I sound like one of those WWF wrestling announcer people? I feel like one right now. Uh, This week, I know I say this every week, but this week has been batshit crazy in the news. Uh, So we're actually going to switch the show around this week. And the first half is going to be me talking to John Kelly, not the guy who could or could not have written the New York Times op-ed that everyone is still talking about, uh, but actually my editor, Vanity Fair. And then after we talk about Trump and the op-ed and Bob Woodward and Jack Dorsey and Sheryl Sandberg and Congress and Kavanaugh and all of the crazy, 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 crazy shit that just happened and is still happening, uh, the second half of the show is going to be with Nancy Joe Sales, who is a writer and reporter and author and is now the director of a new documentary called Swiped, Hooking Up in the Digital Age, which is out on HBO next week. And she's going to talk to us about what Tinder and Hinge and all of these things, these dating, whatever the hell you want to call them, uh, have done to society, have screwed up our teenagers and young adults and so on. I'm actually featured in the documentary. I have a very small clip where I, I'm interviewed and I talk about how crazy uh, technology can be for society. But um, it's a it's a fascinating documentary and uh, a really amazing interview. Uh, so let's get to the first half of this and, and welcome John Kelly back to the show. Welcome, John Kelly, the author of the infamous op-ed article in the New York Times. How do you feel being out as the guy who wrote this, John? Was it really that obvious, Nick, that I did it? Uh, Have I used Lodestar in our conversations on your podcast before? You have. I went back to the archives, and I recognized that you said it forwards and backwards a few times. Uh, Russell. Um, And it it was definitely you. Okay, so let's just jump right in here. We've had some crazy weeks uh, in the Trump administration. I may have said this before, but I truly do believe it right now that this has been probably the craziest and chaotic yet. I mean, there have been moments that have been sad and despondent, fear, uh, you know, around uh, potential nuclear annihilation, families being torn apart. But when it comes to actual coverage and media and our industry, this feels like the pinnacle of, of everything we've seen. And you and I both worked at the New York Times for for many, many years. And what I want to kind of start off with is this op-ed piece that everyone's talking about and dissecting. And I wanted to get your take on if you think this is a good idea, it was a good idea, or if it was a bad idea. There are some people I've spoken to in in the journalism community, uh, some of whom have worked at the Times before and worked there, who have said that they don't think it was a great idea, that it, it really kind of puts it makes the times look bad it makes them look like you know they're involved with the deep state if you will and there are a lot of people who say the opposite and think that it was a 
a, a rallying cry and a and a, a you know almost like a, a cheerleader saying, "Hey, we're we're here fighting with you. Don't worry." Uh, but as someone who worked at the Times as an editor, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think first and foremost, it it is massive, right? I mean, it, it is yes. just um, it as John Homan's, uh here would say, it, it is a massive score, and um, and it was not a gift. You know, I know that um, James Dow, the op-ed editor, has told Michael Barbaro on the Daily, and also um, I think he talked to Stelter. Um, our own Joe Pompeo has done a story on this. Um, this they were contacted through an intermediary um, uh, that the Times was comfortable with, but they had to vet this person, he or she, very considerably. And I'm sure an extraordinary amount of time went into making sure that they weren't being catfished making sure that they weren't falling into the trap of some sort of opposition researcher, you know? Um, uh, Time, uh, Times editors are famously um, uh, uh, skittish about these kinds of um, uh, opportunities because they worry that they're being taped by someone who's, you know, who's going to put it on the internet and, and uh, if they are to ask for incriminating evidence about Donald Trump or, or do anything that could suggest a liberal agenda. So I think that they did an extraordinary job of, of bringing in a, a, a humongous fish. And I think that they, they vetted this person well. I'm sure a lot of careful thought went into the, the precise language. Lodestar is a word that we've all stopped on. Um, yeah, it's, it's it, the, the, the internet is picking it apart, Oxford comma by Oxford comma by M-dash. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, you know, I don't think that anyone's going to figure it out by, by that stuff. I think if you have the guts to, to write this, um, you are... Uh, you're 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 in the clear. I, it, it, I, but what I well, do wonder this is this person wants to be discovered at some point, right? I mean, I presume that. Um, and, and the uh, the tenure for the average Trump administration official, it's like the average tenure of an NFL left tackle, right? It's like it's not a very long uh, run in a job. So presumably, this person will 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 have their own kind of deep throat reveal at some point in which they can they can bask in some refracted glow of glory and and uh, and you know valuing country over party. I thought that was. I saw a funny tweet from uh, uh, Jestweck. It said, uh, "I'm no HR professional, but it's probably a bad sign when an employee writes an anonymous letter calling you a brain dead asshole, and you can't even narrow it down to 100 people." That pretty much sums up <laughs> sums up the. Uh, um, well, let's talk a little bit about what you, what is actually going on inside the White House. Uh, we've been reporting it. Uh, Axios had a great story that Trump apparently said that uh, there are snakes everywhere. Um, I, uh, I, what I'm curious about is, is this op-ed came out uh, on the, uh, the juxtaposition of Bob Woodward's book, uh, which is another fascinating media story where you, you have Trump clearly lying to Bob Woodward, who brought down Nixon, uh, about, uh, being able to let, letting Bob interview him. And then, and this book that's going to come out that apparently is going to be a bombshell, um, what is some of the stuff that we're hearing kind of in the newsroom and, and from Joe Pompeo and people like that uh, and Gabe Sherman about what's going on inside the White House right now? Well, we knew the book was going to be massive. I mean, I think you and I started talking about that a few weeks ago. I heard from somebody yeah. um, uh, who's in great gossip loops that it was it was going to be um, an order of magnitude larger than um, than the Michael Wolff book, uh, not just because Woodward's reputation is, is a, a little more um, pristine, establishment friendly. A, a lot more pristine. 
Yeah, he's. I mean, he's he's pretty unimpeachable. I, I I think that in the end, the Trump administration had very little that they could kind of back Michael Wolff down about. But but um, but Bob Woodward is his own entity. Um, you know, everyone uh, uh, is seizing on this being about um, wh- whether there are any Mueller clues here. It seems like Jared and Ivanka are very uh, are, are relatively untouched. Um, you know what what what. I've been hearing, and you know, Gabe's reported this too, is that everyone in the inner circle of Trump world just wants to know how they came out, you know, and I think that uh, many of them view this as as their shot at posterity. Um, others of them view this as uh, a, a way of reasserting their their position in the totem, uh, uh, you know, within Trump world. But you know, I, I think the thing that actually has mattered the most in what's been a very chaotic news cycle. Is is not the disclosures in the book themselves? You know, not even the bit about Gary Cohen taking the NAFTA document off Trump's desk, which is or the North Korea um, trade deal document off Trump's desk, which is pretty chilling. Um, but the phone call between Trump and Woodward, I think that oh yeah, yeah that scared the shit out of people because um, you know Americans got to hear how even in like the middle of the afternoon during prime daylight hours, Trump just sounds bat shit crazy he just he just sounds like someone who does not have his marbles um the thing the thing is he sounds batshit crazy but he sounds like a batshit crazy person who has an incredible memory you know i mean he literally remembers he's like we met uh, you know bob Weber was like oh yeah it was a year and a half ago but trump's like no it's two years ago and we met 20 years ago and i mean sure i would remember that i met bob woodward but I met Carl Bernstein once. I don't remember when it was. It's it's like he's so he's like he's half batshit crazy and he's still clearly like half quite smart in in, in some regards. You know his his ability to remember things and numbers and so on, even though he lies about numbers a lot. But I think that the the I guess the thing that I'm wondering and I you know the book comes out next week and we'll we'll know more then. But the thing that I'm wondering is is if this book can have an impact. I mean, the thing with with um, uh, what's his face's book with Wolf's book uh, was that Steve Bannon was kicked out of the White House essentially, right. and he was kicked out of the administration, and and heads rolled, and and we now have a kind of a new administration, partially as a result of that. Um, Kellyanne Conway, of course, survived, um, but uh, but what do you, what what are the potential things that could come of of Bob Woodward's book, and you know. Bob Woodward was the guy who took down Nixon. So, you know, he's written a book about every single president since Nixon. Uh, and those books have had massive impacts. I, right. I'm curious what you think may happen as a result of this. Well, it's interesting. I mean, um, comparing it to Fire and Fury is funny because that was sort of the end of the first wave of of, um, of Trumpers, the ones who'd gotten through the election and, and, and the first wave of, uh, of uh, cabinet appointees, you know. Um, and now it's a very different cast of players. And also, there are a lot of empty jobs still. Um, I I think that most people assume that John Kelly, who either cooperated or seemed to, you know, uh, was the boss of Rob Porter, who certainly seemed to um, have privileged information that's wound up in the book. Uh, K- K- Kelly's timeline has probably been expedited, um, is one guess. Um, uh, will Trump get furious at Kelly and Conway for not being entirely forthcoming about this. And, and on that call, it's pretty clear that Kelly and Conway was the source. She went to uh, Woodward's house for lunch, I believe. And, um, um, you know, and, and of course, Conway is, is well known to be a um, uh, So a t- let me just, 
let me just interrupt for people who don't know about the call very quickly. Bob Woodward called Trump this week, and they he recorded the call, as, and Trump said it was okay, which was also very curious. And then Trump pretended that he had never been asked to be interviewed for the book, and it was very clear. It was kind of a bit of an act, uh, at least to me. Um, so sorry, go on. You were saying, yeah, and he, and he, and then, and then he conceded pretty quickly that Lindsey Graham had mentioned it, and and then yeah. Clay and Connolly happened to be in his office, and and um, uh, Woodward asked her, and she said, oh yeah, I I I told Rod Shaw, you know, who's a uh, a, a spokesperson in the, in the communication shop, and um, uh, Trump basically said, oh Raj, I never talked to that guy. So um, it was. So I think, I think Rod Shaw has also gone, although that has been uh, reported in the past. I think Jackie Albany, um, now the Washington Post, reported that Sarah Sanders and Raj were probably gone at the end of the year. Um, but it could be significant. I mean, what, what I wonder um, is whether – and I'm just speculating, you know, but, but um, people in Trump world have generally viewed – both Haley and Pence's circles as being politically motivated, very politically shrewd, and um, as being two people who hope to have political afterlives beyond the Trump administration. Um, mm. And I and I wonder if whether or not they cooperated. And I have no idea. There's no reason to to, to believe that they did. Um, but whether they um, are held uh, with a certain amount of suspicion. Um, also, certainly, uh, it seems like Jim Mattis is. Um, uh, is is vulnerable to um, to some emotional reprisal. It, it it stretches out pretty significantly. I mean, you know, who's who's going to be unscathed? Wilbur Ross, I guess. Um, Kudlow, um, uh, Pence himself, who who seems to have been very buttoned up. Um, but it's gonna what it's gonna do in the in the near term is just drive Trump nuts, literally nuts and um and it seems like it's already doing that yeah i mean i think that it was a, a five alarm breakdown this week on twitter for trump he he was at each tweeted the word treason question mark after <laughs> i know the times piece he's been retweeting he gave an interview to the daily caller of all places um saying that bob woodward is made the whole thing up and he retweeted every single cabinet member that he could in from Mattis to Kelly to you name it to Sanders uh, quotes about them saying the book is fabricated and you know it's definitely you know I mean the thing that the thing that is just so fascinating is you hear it's 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 as if Trump lives in his own different multiple universes because you hear him on the phone with Bob Woodward and Trump's praising him and saying, you know, he's the best and they've known each other for years and he's always, you know, blah, 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 blah. And just like how he's the real deal. And and uh, and then he hangs up the phone and starts tweeting that that Woodward's a crazy person who just made a whole bunch of shit up and um, and don't believe a word of him that he's ever said. And it's all it's I mean, he literally tweeted the the. Uh, the quote from John Kelly that this was quote total BS. I can't believe yeah. the president of the United States is tweeting that, but um, it's uh, yeah, it's just fascinating how he uh, he he just is a is a ferocious liar who just doesn't stop lying and uh, only says what people want to hear that are right in front of him. I, I, I don't I don't know. I mean. We will see. I, I will be able to talk about this next week when the book comes out. I will be reading yeah. it uh, voraciously, and so we'll, we'll we'll see from there. I do think, um, just as, as a, as a uh, before we move on to the next topic, I, I do think that one 
One interesting thing that we can return to next week is, is, you know, Woodward books are, they're also different from most um, uh, nonfiction in that they are, they're cultural moments, you know, so this is, this is a part of the zeitgeist. It's not something that um, is going to just, you know, appeal to, to right or left or to a certain, uh, you know, intellectual demographic. It, it becomes its own, you know, 60-minute segment and, and, and multiple news cycles, and, and, and it becomes something that becomes part of pop culture that descends down the food chain. So I think that things like that um, create vulnerabilities for Trump, um, whereas the, the Mueller investigation and the Russia probe are, are, um, are less bothersome to his base, which is largely um, impervious to them. So this could be, this could have a real political setback, and, and um, uh, I would be curious to see if it does anything to... Um, to to offset or delay the the, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, although I, I I don't think it will. I don't think it will. Well, let's just jump into the to the Kavanaugh conversation um, very briefly. I, I mean, look, I think that sadly, I think he will end up being a, a Supreme Court justice. Um, I think that he is. Um, I think he's he's a he's a very good actor. He's uh, very good at unbelievably pretending. good. Yeah, I mean it's 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 pretty impressive actually. I mean, I've you you know we've seen people up there in front of in front of uh, Congress and uh, being questioned by committees and uh, and they they don't do well under that pressure. It's it's difficult. It's I wouldn't be able to do it. And and uh, Kavanaugh is just smooth sailing. Like all right, let's uh, let's let's do this. It's, it's cameras, lights, action. Um, yeah. Before we at- we started taping, I, I, we, were, we were talking. Um- we were just bullshitting, and I was watching uh, Kavanaugh on CNN during the hearing. I mean, my God, has this guy mastered the like Washington faux series? I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a it's a um, it's a stunt so good that it, that you need like a Mark Leibovich to write about it. He he looks you know so so thoughtful, taking notes uh, as each senator speaks. His arms are always crossed. He's always offering a sort of puppy dog quizzical look. Um, uh, you know th- this kind of uh, faux serious zeal um, that is it, it just it, it's this uber earnestness that people in Washington um, compete on and it, it's just dreadful. It's why I could not last a single you know uh, more than a week there with, without um, ne- needing a, a you know I don't know a lobotomy in the in the swamp. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's it's just this, it's what's frustrating is how the we've gone through all these news cycles around this and. Uh, and the Republicans have done what the Republicans do so, so, so well, just hide documentation and and not release information. And, you know, there's, of course, things that have leaked finally about how Kavanaugh doesn't consider Roe versus Wade uh, set in stone as a law of the land. And there are all these things that have come out. But at the end of the day, you know, he will be the nominee. And I think that the the thing, the only thing that we can, the nominee, he'll be the, the justice. The, uh, um, the only thing we can pray and hope for is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg eats her greens and does her her push-ups and survives the next two and a half years. But uh, other than that, I think I think we're just screwed. And it's like it's just it's just done. It's just, it would it's seem hard theater. to um, it would seem hard to imagine that the Democrats, uh, particularly in a Democrat-led um, uh, House, would be able to with with, with, with close to a. You know, we'll see what happens in the Senate. Uh, it'll, it'll be close. Um, wouldn't find ways to 
to create a moratorium for a potential third Trump Supreme Court appointment. You know, mm-hmm. that would be um, there, there. There are political options at, at their disposal to 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 stall. And um, what, and are, the, sure what they, are those political options? Well, I, I, it's funny. I was going to say I, I, I don't have them at my fingertips, but there are um, there are, you know, um, there are political filibusters that they can use. And and and, um, and they can be as simple and as mercenary as what Mitch McConnell did, which was, you know, basically, um, uh, you know, come Say up no. with a, a sort of erroneous argument with Merrick Garland that you, you can't do this in, um, you know, with an outgoing president at the start of an election year or in the, in the middle of an election cycle, you know. Um, and we're getting so close after 2018, we're, we're going to be getting so close to to what will almost certainly be the most divisive, vulgar, you know, fight to the death um, presidential race in our in our history that uh, you could see a Chuck Schumer or or a cabal of um, influential Congress people, maybe just just you know who have ambitions for higher office, uh, making a sort of public relations statement. Um, and then, well, the know, and I'm sure there are other uh, legislative maneuvers. I think that the the um, the reality is looking. You know, I've I've questioned. I, I don't want to be the one that says, "Oh, we're going to win," and the Democrats are going to win in uh, in 2018. Uh, it it looks likely, but I think that that everything really hinges on that. Um, uh, and that would also and, be off-brand with your with your generally pessimistic uh, viewpoint. Of well, I well I was just about to say that I actually this week have had a pessim uh, not sorry an optimist I can't even say the word I had an optimistic moment this week I I was um, uh, you know I watched over the last week I watched the John McCain funeral and 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 you get the feeling even though George Bush was an asshole and a bad president and did terrible things and and you know even though obama did stuff that i grossly disagree with and i don't think he was as great a president as everyone says he was and even though you know clinton had his infidelities and he he um it was his his choices that led us to have the uh the prison system that we have today um and so on and so forth you get the feeling that there's this there's another side to all of this where there's that we'll get through it that we'll get that we you know America will be beaten and bruised as a country but the thing that I think that I felt after McCain was that there's this vulgar human being in the White House who is surrounded by other vulgar human beings that you know refuses to go to this funeral and uh, to say anything nice and so on and so forth and yet you have the majority of the country that that, that does uh, and that supports him and former presidents that do and say you know and I th- I think that and I watched that funeral and I and then I went to I went to a baseball game with my son for the first time and I don't know much about baseball but there was this feeling that like I had where I felt America can get through this they can survive Trump and this nastiness and I think that. There's a positive side to Trump. There's a, a there's actually a hugely hugely positive side to Trump, which is that you, if you want to do good in the world, you have to have an enemy to fight, and there is no better enemy than the Trump administration that has done so much bad to this country. And I think that you're you you know you're seeing Beto O'Rourke and people like that who I've been talking about for the last year as a person who who is able to rise above all this crap, and you're seeing. 
you're seeing this excitement around people who um, and conversations. I think where there's there's hope. Uh, I hate to use that word, but it's 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 a real. I, that's the feeling I've had, and so I, I feel like there's. You know, if it wasn't for Trump, we would not have had the Me Too movement. If it wasn't for Trump, we would not have more women running for office than we've ever had in history. If it wasn't for Trump, you wouldn't have had Cortez one. You won't have Beto O'Rourke, who's up against Ted Cruz. You wouldn't have all of these people who are able to rise through the norm um, and kind of offer this potential new world of government um, and, and I think that, uh, and if it wasn't for Trump, we probably wouldn't have jobs in the way we do. I think that the media industry is doing so well because of him, uh, because it's something that's fighting against him. And I think that, that this week I had this kind of positive moment thinking about all that. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, that takes the bright side, Nick. I'm proud of you, buddy. That's a really, Thanks. uh, Thanks, that's a really grown up perspective. Um, Thanks. many people have been, uh, you're right. Um, and many people have been um, certainly wounded along the way when it comes to um, uh, things like the, uh, the the so-called Muslim ban and, and, and of course, the, the horrific uh, border separations, uh, which we're still getting the bottom of. That is um, true. That is true. Not and a... many people have gotten just, you know, even wildly richer, like um, like all the, all the rich people that we know. Um, and it's all gross. But, uh, but if this New York Times op-ed teaches us anything, it's that... Um, uh, you know the, the the people inside the system are doing everything they can to like jank up the wheel to make sure that you know he can't drive the bus. So, all right, so let's uh, let's end this us uh, blabbering away on uh, on a topic I know all too well: technology. We had um, uh, Jack Dorsey and Sheryl Sandberg in front of Congress this week doing more theater, um, and it was uh i felt like I, I felt like a lot of the stuff has been theater it's just been there for for senators to ask questions about whether um whether they uh they're 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 being shadow banned or or whatnot um or you know ask why their printer doesn't work things like that uh but i felt like i felt like this week there was kind of a, a there's going to be a push towards some sort of uh I don't know if it's going to be regulation or agreement or something, but I feel like just the language that was being spoken this week meant that there was going to be um, there was going to be something that will come of this stuff, uh, and maybe there's a world where the government actually steps up the plate and does something to, to to try to avoid what's happened before to happen again with these social media networks. The um... I don't know. I don't know. Oh, well, let me, I mean, uh, don't bother asking me. I don't know. Well, well, I mean, you know, elaborate. What, what do you think is really going to happen? You, you think well, look, this is, um, how much, how much can really change, you know, given, given how formed they are and, and, and their, and their role in, um, uh, in the social firmament? Well, I think that what can change is that there can be, there can be specific rules put in place. I think that, you know, I mean, we, there's a saying in, in business that, um, when it comes to technology, that there are two kinds of companies, those that have been hacked and those that don't know they've been right. hacked yet. And I think that that's true for these social media networks. There are these, they, they, they've not taken privacy seriously. They've used it for ads. They, they, they haven't taken data seriously. Uh, you know, Jack Dorsey can get up there until he's blue in the face and talk about how he could do better with this and better with that and do better with this. And he's sorry about this. And, and it's, and it, eventually they have to start doing these things. And he can, you know, he talks about Dorsey talked this week about how the, 
you know, it's it's dis- dismaying to him to see that the the um, the platform has been used so negatively. And he actually said something that was com- uh, that was complete opposite to something I've said before, which is that he thinks that by making the platform healthier, by making Twitter healthier, that more people will use it. I think that ship has already sailed. Honestly, I don't think that you're going to do anything that's going to turn that turn that around i think that um it, it is it is a de facto part of the dna that it is a negative platform yeah, um, my, i mean my but, question to you is uh, uh uh it seems like the only thing that could really make this work is that there if there is a real business incentive you know not, and not regulation not like you guys got to follow the rules or else but actually um there's a company that is following the rules and becoming wildly popular so you've got to come up with your your you know the, the way that facebook copied instagram stories like is there is there a, a version of that for like civil, non-hackable, non-Macedonian troll um, uh, social media? And do you think there's a business big enough to make these companies really care about um, the, the the sanitization required? I think that uh, you know Mark Zuckerberg's uh, stock fell 120 billion dollars in one hour um, last quarter. Uh, Twitter stock has been on a precipitous decline. It's back to where it was a year ago, give or take. Um, and I think that, uh, that 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 is a result of consumers who have had enough. And, um, and I think that when consumers have had enough, that means that Wall Street has to follow suit. And they recognize, you know, the, the great thing about these companies is there's data to prove what's really happening. And, um, and you're seeing people leave these platforms. Uh, you're seeing daily users are down on Twitter. You're seeing um, uh, you, you're seeing millions of people stop using Facebook, deleting their accounts, uh, and that is all a result of the world that we live in today. I don't use Twitter that much anymore because it just makes me sad. It just is a gross place, and uh, and I'm not the only person who does that. I don't know. I don't, do you use Facebook? I don't use Facebook. I, I no. I, 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 I mean, I use. I only the only one I actually use is Instagram. Honestly, uh, to, just to to um, to like look at my friends, pretend they have great lives. Yeah, well, that's and but that's it. It's all it's all fake. It's all bullshit. It's garbage it's everywhere all, else. Yeah, that's all, garbage yeah, too. All, yeah, it's all garbage. And and I think that um, uh, that that's that 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 they you know you can have. You can only watch so much reality TV, and then you're just like, "Oh God, this makes me feel sick." Uh, and I think don't get that, sick. Um, don't get sick. I man. think that I think that that's I think that's where we are with social media. Honestly, um, there will be a lot of people that will still use it, who have empty, vapid lives, and there will be a lot of people who use it who are who are normal human beings who don't who are happy but still like to share the things that they do. But I think that a lot of people will stop and are stopping. And I think that that is the turning point when these companies realize they have no choice but to fix it. Um, and then you, the, on the heels of that, um, while all of these hearings are theater and they're there just to make the Congress people look good because they're asking tough or stupid questions, um, I do think that there will be some repercussions. I think, you know, you, Jeff Sessions is meeting with state level attorney generals to make sure that social media is not you know, banning conservative voices, uh, um, that will work in all ways, uh, whether anything happens with it, you know, Congress is talking about legislation that will ensure that rogue governments can't do things on the platforms. And and I think that we're, I think we're in for a change. Um, and, uh, whether, whether they work out well or, or not, at least we're seeing something different change. So, uh, so that's my, my positive spin on that one. See, look how positive I am today, John. This is very exciting. You're stuff. in a great mood. 
I'm so happy for you, Nick. Thank no, you but very no, much. I, All right. I, I think you're right. It, 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 look, it can't get worse, right? So, Yes, it cannot get worse. That is the motto of today. That is the, the best we can do for a positive spin. Um, on that note, um, I am going to end our fascinating conversation, and we're going to move on to... Nancy Joe Sales, who has written for our magazine, has a new documentary out on HBO about hookup culture and technology and how that's destroying the lives of young people who are trying to find true love, like you and I, John. I know. Well, I can't wait to hear this conversation, Nick. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to hear you talk to, to Nancy Joe, and, and um, I can't wait to see this documentary. All right. Well, let's go. Let's do it. Good talking right, to you, John, out, as always. All right. Nancy, welcome to Inside the Hive. Thank you, Nick. Uh, thank you. So, okay, so let's just, uh, for viewers, listeners, all those people with ears and eyes and mouths and so on, uh, can you give us a little, uh, a little preview of exactly what this documentary is about? Swiped is a kind of survey of online dating and dating apps and it examines the ways in which technology has changed the landscape of dating and how it affects the ways that uh, people treat each other, how they meet, how they, as evolutionary psychologists and biologists say, mate. And we talked to six main characters all over the country in four different cities, as well as a lot of experts, including you. And the heads of some of the leading dating apps, uh, CEOs and CSOs of the big ones like Tinder and Bumble and Hinge and Match Group. And um, there's a lot of discussion of gender issues. Uh, we go into a lot of things, including uh, racism on the apps, transphobia on the apps, uh, LGBTQ, uh, you know, issues and concerns and we we tried to be very diverse and talk to a lot of different people um, from different places people of color and I wanted to give a really broad range of voices because so many people use this technology well okay so let's just go back to how this all started so you did an it, an article you wrote an article for I believe it was Vanity Fair about Tinder and Sean Rad which was which was one of those seminal articles that get shared all over the internet because there's so much chaotic, insane stuff in it. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. I don't remember. What was the amazing quote from Sean Rad, the CEO of Tinder? It was something about uh, he just screwed something up royally. Um, but tell us a little bit about how that came about and how you got to this. And then I, and then I want to really get into, you know, how dating culture has changed since we were kids, of course, um, and kind of what the implications are of that. But let's go back to that article uh, in Vanity Fair. Um, I believe it was 2015, right? Um, and and how that all came about. How the article came about, you mean? Yeah, how the article came about and how, how this led you down this path of kind of writing more about uh, this kind of dating apocalypse world that we live in and, and all the things that will come about it. Okay, well, I did a book that came out in 2016 called American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. And um, that all started from a Vanity Fair article, too, called Friends Without Benefits. The first anecdote in that piece was actually a 16-year-old girl in Los Angeles telling me about Tinder and how she had had her heart broken 
by a guy in school, and so she said she was just going to go and find some guy on Tinder and lose her virginity as a way to sort of deal with her emotions, you know, the emotional fallout of this thing. I'd never heard of Tinder before. I'd never, I'd heard of Grindr. I, I didn't know that there were dating apps like Tinder yet, and it really, it really had just came out, and it's, it's, you know... It's not surprising that the first person to tell me about it was a teenager because, as you know, young people are often the first to adapt new technology. So um, after that, I started doing the book, and I, I wanted to do a film. And I was taking along a cameraman with me. I didn't really – I'd never been to film school or anything, so we were traveling around all these cities, and I would just take along this <laughs> – great cameraman that I got very lucky to be introduced to named Daniel Carter who's the cameraman on also Swipe the documentary and um, I you know Dana Brown who's my editor at, who was my editor at Vanity Fair under Graydon Carter he said uh, why don't you talk to Graydon about what you're doing if you're making a documentary film you know maybe he can give you some advice or whatever so I mentioned to Graydon that I was doing this uh, you know trying to make a film about then I thought, you know, girls and social media and all these really powerful interviews I was having with all these girls about cyberbullying, slut shaming. I mean, just all of these really unprecedented things that were happening to girls online and were, you know, this kind of sexism that was spilling on onto their lives in school. So as well, um, and Grayton was it was he was interested and he said, you know, why don't you do some cuts and. Um, take him up to HBO, talk to Sheila Nevins at HBO and see what she thinks. And so I met with Sheila, then the head of documentary there, and Jackie Glover, who's an exec one of the executive producers on Swiped. And, you know, we had several talks and we were trying to sort of figure out how to fashion this into um, a movie that would work. And, and are you, when you're talking about this stuff, are you, are you talking about like, okay, do, is it I, for me when I talk about this stuff I feel like I'm an alien from another planet I've come down and there's these things called teenagers that are using these apps is it are you kind of trying to understand the lay of the land in the same way most people who were not born um, after 1990 or whatever are or are you um, it, what is it that you're trying to get to because it's it, the thing that's so fascinating is is how quickly this culture has changed. Uh, it, it's really just a matter of years, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I, you know, teenagers and youth culture have sort of been my unofficial beat for going on more than 20 years. I got really lucky when I was back at New York Magazine in the 90s. I just, you know, randomly got assigned a story about teenagers and it sort of took off from there. And I, I guess I've sort of become known as someone who interviews teenagers and I don't, I do get that a lot. Like, do you feel like an alien? Do they look at you like you're weird? I don't know. I don't know if it's because I'm <laughs> immature or what. Right now I'm wearing a Star Wars t-shirt, so I don't know. I'm 53 years old, but I feel really comfortable around teenagers, and I love talking to them because I think that they have just, you know, also my a lot of the stories that I write are very dialogue-driven, and, and um, the... Um, I see a lot of times the stories that I'm doing is almost like movie scripts, you know, like they're they're just like I want to set the set the scene, and teenagers just talk in this great way, you know, their their use of language is so so alive, and I love to hear them talk about things. And even back in the '90s, teenagers were adopting new technology, and often it was used in in ways that involved 
sex too. Like they were running around with video cameras, you know, back those handheld things in the 90s, filming each other, fighting, having sex and all these things, you know, like that was the first of the sex tapes, like Pamela Anderson's sex tapes was like this huge deal. I mean, now it just looks so, it looks so benign because she and Tommy Lee were like madly in love and their, their sex tape got released, their honeymoon and everything. And it was this big scandal. Now it's like, that's just nothing compared to what the average teenager is seeing online. They were also looking at pornography. So I was sort of writing about teenagers and technology without kind of knowing it before social media as well. And um, so I, I, you know, it just became like my thing. And um, so, yeah, so how did it come to be this Tinder and the dawn of the dating apocalypse story? You know, I don't write the headlines. Um, A lot of people... (laughs) had this very strong reaction to this headline. Dana Brown wrote the headline, and it was, I, I'm bad at headlines. It was a great headline because it got people t- to read the story and talk about the story, but maybe not read far enough into the story because a lot of people took that headline, that phrase, dating apocalypse, which was a actually a quote. It was in quotes in the headline, and it was a quote from a young woman uh, who was interviewed in the piece, and she was talking about how this whole dating scene was just a mess to you know in so, her estimation so great and assign that story great and assign that story because i'm sorry this is sort of circuitous way i'm telling this but so we're talking about doing this documentary we're trying to figure out what it is i'm telling him about all the reporting for my book american girls i tell him about tinder this is Graydon, and he says oh my gosh we got i remember i took it out in his office i didn't have it on my phone i downloaded it and i showed him in the vanity fair office how quickly you could get like guys to match with you and ask you to like come over and have sex with them, like right, right there in the office. And he'd never seen this before. And he's like, "Wow, um, you should do a story on this." And I was actually a little reluctant at first because I said, "Oh, wow, it's 2015. Everybody already knows about Tinder already." But what really hadn't been discussed and what people really weren't talking about yet was the way in which. Um, these dating apps were the seat of a lot of dysfunction and especially as involves misogyny and sexism and sexual harassment. And this just wasn't being talked about. You know, a lot of the media pieces you would see about Tinder, except for years in the New York Times, that one was notably different. But um, a lot of these pieces were almost read like PR for Tinder. And I I don't know why that is, but because I think there was just this lovey-dovey relationship between well, I don't think people. I think I think one of the problems was that people didn't necessarily, and I think a lot of people still don't. But a lot of people didn't necessarily see the the negatives that would come from this culture. Um, so, so getting to the documentary. So you, you you sat down with all these teens. What what are some of the the things that that you discovered from these teens um, that you well, hadn't discovered before? I'm sorry to interrupt you. The documentary isn't really just teens. It's um, people who are 18 to 29. And the reason for that was that um, the reason it skews younger is that those are the people who mostly use dating apps. It's 18 to 25 is the largest demographic. And for a lot of them, um, they have never known anything else. They've never known any other kind of dating. And this goes back not even before dating apps. They were dating off of, of the Internet, off of social media, off of different different platforms, you know, texting and all this kind of thing. So technology is a part of their dating world. So it goes into characters who are um, on a college campus uh, in their mid-20s and late and early 20s, mid-20s, late 20s. And we have all these different groups. 
And so when you're talking to these people, so just to back up for one second, that so I have um, uh, neighbors that have you know teenage kids and and they are using these services, uh, which is terrifying <laughs> when I think about just how the 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 culture has, how quickly it's changed and what it must be like to grow up with this stuff. The the thing that's I that I that I keep wondering is we it's very clear and maybe you disagree with me on this, but it's very clear that these technologies have are having detrimental effects to the way kids are meeting significant others and and so on. I know it's, you know, you're you're younger, you're in your teens or your 20s or whatever and you're not trying to marry this person, but it it's creating a dynamic that is is different. It, is it do you th- do you believe that it's bad or do you believe that at the end of the day it's just it's just the the natural progression of how people meet each other through technology? I think we have to look at the different things that are different. And it is, you know, we have experts in the film who talk about, who are research scientists, evolutionary psychologists, who talk about the unprecedented nature of all of this. You know, um, I think you and I, when we had our interview for for the piece, uh, you, you for the film, Swiped, you talked about how, you know, if you criticize anything about technology at all, or even ask for an examination of what's going on, Often there's this reactive uh, thing where people say you're a luddite, um, you don't, you just don't get it, you know, you're behind the times. But I think that's really unfortunate, especially when it comes to young people and and love and sex, because these are these are things that go to the heart of who we are and uh, and how we feel on a daily basis and and how we feel in terms of whether we're being treated right or respected, you know. And so I think that what the film swiped um, really, which, by the way, everyone, is Monday, September 10th at 10 p.m. I'm getting a note from the publicist here <laughs> to say that. <laughs> she sent me Don't worry, we'll plug it. She sent me yeah, this, we'll plug it. Keep, keep going. She sent me this keep piece going. of paper across the table. Um, yes, where was I? So I think that what it really tries to do is to examine and discuss and look at it from different angles that involve not only how the people who are using it are reporting how you know what it's like, but also people who are experts in many fields. And you know, just going back to how the film came about. So the and this relates to what you're asking. So Tinder, the Tinder and the dating apocalypse piece went viral. There's this huge controversy. I was so perplexed by that because a lot of it was as if people had never actually read the piece. I I think that they latched onto this thing, dating technology, d- dating apocalypse, and they said, "Oh well, that's not true. She doesn't know what she's talking about." I went on a date last night. You know, it's just it was just like stupid stuff like that. And really, if they had actually read past the headline of the first few paragraphs, they would see very, very, very quickly that it was about. Um, misogyny you know in the very first scene which is this guy who's this really you know he uses tinder very successfully and his friends are sort of you know um talking about all his exploits and he says to me because he's just looking at me listening and i'm trying not to convey anything with my face and he says to me do you think this culture is misogynistic and that's like in the very first scene of the of the story and i would say that that's the question um that we continue to ask in this film and i think we should continue to ask um as as we look at 
you know, look at how we use these things. That's one of the things. But going back to your question, is it bad? Is it good? I think, you know, the first thing about technology um, is speed. Everything speeds up and goes much, much faster. And, you know, um, I th you had this great quote when we, when we did this interview uh, way back when, and you said, and it's not in the film, sorry. You have other great quotes in the film, but you said, um, <laughs> <laughs> you said, you know, look at what technology does. You know, cars go make you go faster. Airplanes make you go faster. Technology is always about speeding up life in some way. And that's certainly true in the case of Tinder and other dating apps. I mean, the whole point of them is to create the shortest space possible between you and another person so that you can start messaging each other and perhaps meet up and perhaps do other things. So is that bad or good? Well, we certainly know that it changes things. It and and we know that from behind a screen, you know, people are less likely to be real to and this is all borne out in like surveys of 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 people who use these apps. They're less likely to be totally honest. They are more likely to be aggressive. You know, this is something that is widely uh, you know, you know, widely reported by me and others and also is in the film is the amount of sexual harassment. I was just talking to a young woman this morning from another, uh, you know, uh, media venue, and she was talking to me about her Tinder use and how she's noticed, she says, I'm quoting her, that um, there's been more and more and more sexual harassment on on these apps, that these dating apps. And she said, why do you think that is? Now, I'm not, I have not reported that. That was her reporting this to me, but... If that's true, if it has gotten worse, I would say it's because it's become so normalized. You know, it's like because nobody is really asking these questions that I hope this film is asking and raising that we start talking about more. Um, harassment is normalized. It's just like a kind of thing that happens on whatever dating app. You know, that's just what you come to expect. Dick pics, you know, are a thing that. Uh, I, th I think there's one study that says like 70 something percent of millennial women have received a dick pic, you know, unsolicited. Yeah, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that number is actually probably low. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. All right. So, so what, wait, but what so, is that, so, what is that doing to us? Well, that's what my question is. So, so, so the, the, the larger question is, is what is what are the implications of this? I mean, you you sit you sat you talk to the CEOs of all these companies. You you speak to these people that use these services. You speak to these psychologists. What are the uh, the larger implications of this? Um, is this just the new normal? I mean, I have a belief that when it comes to social media, for example, that uh, that we as a society are receding from it because we it it is not what we like and what we what we thought it was going to be. Um, and people are, as you know, people have been deleting their Facebook's accounts and, and, and stopped using Twitter as much and Instagram and, and other things like that. And while there will still be a lot of millions and millions of people that use it, there will be millions of people that do not. And I guess it, it is, is this Tinder culture here to stay or is it something that we could turn around and be like, Hey, maybe we should start going to bars again. And, restaurants or whatever it is and start meeting people that way? Well, the dating industry has exploded in the last five years since Tinder. The online dating industry has exploded. There are now thousands of 
these platforms, all, not just in America, but all over the world, there are hundreds of millions of people using them. And, you know, Tinder is in, I mean, I'm just, you know, we keep bringing up Tinder, but you got to remember there's uh, just a slew of other ones. Um, but Tinder is the place it's used the most is London. And then it's New York and then Paris. And then, you know, uh, Buenos Aires and Moscow are not far behind. I mean, it's everywhere. It's in 128 countries. And other countries like China has a huge dating app culture as well. And I, I'm, I, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember the name of their big dating app. There, there's like a Chinese sort of Tinder. And so, you know, I don't see it um, slowing down. You know, Adam Alter is a socio really, you know, author of a great book, Irresistible. Um, he's, he talks about gamification and the, the, you know, the addictive nature of the swiping mechanism, which Jonathan Bedeen, at CSO of Tinder, who we interviewed, talks very openly about creating... Uh, the swipe in such a way so that it would uh, basically be addictive, you know. So I don't think that something that's addictive, ad designed to be addictive, and designed so well. I mean, I, what, whatever, wherever you come down on whether Tinder's good or bad, you got to admit it's kind of a genius. Oh thing. yeah, no, completely. It's kind of a genius thing. So we have something that's incredibly addictive, and um, it is. You know, please watch the film for a, a more uh, nuanced discussion of why that is. It's I find it really interesting. One of the most interesting things in the film for me was the whole gamification aspect of these apps, which I learned about when I was doing it. But so it's addictive. You get sex, and it's easy. So I don't. I mean, you can get sex. It's that's kind of the point. Of some a lot of people would say of it, although. The heads of the dating apps argue that it's all about love and marriage and getting people, you know, riding off into the sunset and wedded bliss. But we haven't really seen, as far as Tinder goes, the data on that. I asked the Jessica Carbino sociologist at Tinder in the film. It's a, I think, striking moment in the film when I ask her, like, okay, well, where's your data? And she says, oh, well, that's not available. And then we're talking about whether the question of whether or not people actually do get married. She says, well, we're inundated with emails people getting married, but it's impossible to do this survey. Well, your data company, it doesn't seem impossible to me, but uh, you know, that's, that's for the viewers to decide when they watch all of these exchanges, which I, I think are pretty interesting. But so I, I don't well, see it slowing down. I don't see where, wh why would it slow down at this point? You know? And I think that it's already, uh, it's, it's already um, transforming. There's now, one of my friends uh, told me that there's now, uh, it was described to me as a gay dating app called Timey, I think it is, T-A-I-M-I, -I, which now has a video capability. And I was told when I interviewed the heads of these dating companies that that's the next thing on the horizon. That's, I think the head of Match Group, Mandy Ginsburg, told me that that's not coming this year. Is And I think Tinder said as well, this video capability where people are going to be able to, um, you know, stream each other live instead of just like write messages. I think the messages and the pictures are very soon going to look like the Flintstones and that's just going to be gone and people that are going to... That sounds pretty, uh, <coughs> it sounds pretty intense. I mean, it, I, you know, we all thought that when, when uh, the, the FaceTime technology came out that we would no longer use phone calls and that that's how we would communicate. But there, it's, it's a very personal experience to stream video to someone it seems like it's going to kind of you know talking about the speed thing it's going to speed things up even more 
when I go to the when I think about all can the I just CEOs say one and last thing. And, can I just say the yeah. one last thing on that which is that when I've it's not in the this is not in the film but I continue this reporting it's like just part of what I sort of do these days is when I talk to young people that I interview about like what do you think is going to happen when, when the video comes and every single person has says well it's just going to be like naked you know, I mean, like that—that's not—that's already how a lot of young people, you know, FaceTime is like. You could say for a lot of people in this culture, it's naked time. You know, and that's that's how a lot of flirting goes on now. And there's a lot of like sexting. A young man talks about in the film, like how he and his friends, even in middle school, were skyping and and uh, you know, sexting through skyping and stuff. So, I think it's gonna just develop along these lines uh, and not. Not go away. Fun, exciting, scary. <laughs> it's it's scary for someone who has kids. I can't imagine what it's going to look like when they're teenagers and and whatnot. Well, I'm hoping um, your when kids you, when they're when they're old enough, or hope you use the dad. I hope at some point you get a chance to watch the whole film because I think that the film really is is asking us to take a pause and think about what this all means and how this is what kind of people are going to. Are, are we going to be and, and and what kind of people we are when we do things like ghost each other and all of these sort of really unkind and unpleasant and dysfunctional things that happen through the dating culture via technology, which have become normalized, which aren't aren't kind or, or, or um, respectful and are, are causing a lot of people to feel bad. And the, the, the things that you don't hear about when you read these, you know, sort of like New York Times articles about, um, isn't it so great that like everybody's getting married off Tinder that there was that very piece came out a year or two ago and it just as a person who was studying this culture and you know looking at it uh, really closely I just thought like that read like a, a piece of PR that was just sent down from Tinder. Well, most most technology stories do read like pieces of PR when you actually know the how the sausage is made. Uh, sadly, when you talk to these CEOs of these companies, you know the Match Group and um, and Hinge and you know places like that. Um, do you, do they feel any? I mean, when you speak to some CEOs of tech companies, there are some few and far between, but there are still some that feel remorse. And definitely when you speak to engineers that work for, that used to work at Twitter and Facebook, they, they think, oh my God, what have I done? You know, Trump is in office, the Russia in, influences our elections and so on. And, and they feel bad for the culture that they have helped create. Do, do, do the CEOs or any of the people you speak to at these companies, um, whether they're in the film or not, just out of, just a question, um, do they... Do they ever feel remorse for the world that we live in today, or do they think that it's perfectly okay and normal? I think Justin McLeod at Hinge is honest in his, uh, you know, assuming responsibility for the ethical implications of all of this, because oh. according to Justin McLeod, the CEO of Hinge, he's also interviewed in the film, because before the film came out, before he knew me or, you know, anything, he read the Tinder in the Dating Apocalypse article, and he went to his users and conducted this very broad-based survey and saw that a lot of the things in the article were absolutely true. I mean, you can look up the Hinge survey and there's, you know, 81% of people have never found a long-term relationship on a swiping app. Um, there's just, you know, big statistics on oh, people have been on a date and someone starts swiping on the date, you know, just like... Wait, people... Pe <laughs> 
people swipe on a date yeah like they just like take i'm telling you a lot of this rudeness has become very normalized because it's just the way what people do is yeah they swipe on a date or you know the harassing messages and all that kind of thing so he said hey look this isn't right this isn't good i don't want to be the head of a company that where people are are experiencing these things this is what i set out to do so he changed his platform and now hinge is different um i don't want to do an advertisement for hinge i don't i haven't used it so i don't know if it's better or i've looked at it but i don't know if it's actually leading to the outcomes that um you know people want but he tried you know he he addressed it he got rid of the swipe he got rid of the swiping that was his um that was he and his team decided that that was what we have to do and now hinge is different and and so forth but to so yes i think that there he is one notable uh, exception i think to something else which is that i don't think that the that the heads of the dating apps really seem to know what to do or i'm not really sure if they care because if they did maybe they would be doing more i don't know but if you watch the film you will see in the you know the third act of the film there's a lot of discussion of this i I talked to jonathan medine again cso of tinder about it i talked to mandy ginsburg um the newly hired ceo of match group which owns many 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 of these apps what are you guys doing about this you know i've talked to all these young women who say that they're sexually harassed and all these things that we've been discussing here in this conversation and also something i did not know um, when I did the article, Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse, I did not know how much of a problem dating apps have with sexual violence. I was not uh, aware of that at that time. Um, it yeah, was, I was going to ask you to tell, talk a little bit more about that, about how that, how that. Did you watch uh, what, what you discovered? Right. Did you watch that part of the film that were you, Yeah, yeah, but I, I, but for the listeners, um, yeah, to, to tell us a little bit more about about that. Yeah, we just kept getting i i just kept getting interviews with young women who would say yeah you know well you'll see in the film things happened to them through encounters that they had uh on these different apps and i started researching it it's not hard to research it's googleable and yeah these dating services have online dating services have a real problem with rape with sexual assault and and um I don't think they're doing enough about it. I took it to them. I tried to get them to, uh, you know, say show some responsibility, take responsibility, say what um, they were going to do about it. Jonathan Medine said that all of this was really weighing on them, and my cameraman, actually the day that we were there, my cameraman and I noticed that they had all of these, you know, boards on the wall, you know, a whiteboard where you write with a marker, where... They clearly, you know, and he filmed them, and I'm not really sure if he was supposed to, but nobody said anything. But anyway, he did, and they had all of this. They clearly had been having a meeting about this very thing because it said, like, bad actors and this and that. So they're very aware of it internally, I'm sure, and yet when I said to Jonathan Bedeen, well, I, you know, I was just going to let him answer the question. I said, well, are you aware of anything bad? I think is exactly what I said. That's a, it's not a very sophisticated way of saying it. But I said, did are you aware of anything bad that's ever happened to anyone on Tinder? And he said, no, um, no, no one's ever 
said anything to me is basically what he says. And then, you know, we run all these articles of like women who uh, have had very, you know, um, tragic and and uh, disturbing outcomes from Tinder dates. So um, we run them on the screen. So I think that they need to do more. It's a new technology and it hasn't been, you know, car companies had to address uh, things that were harming people. Cigarette companies did and they buried that data for a long time. Um, it's a company, it's an industry. And that's another thing that, you know, I, I really have learned from uh, reading your stuff and other tech, you know, writers who are more on the side of examining this culture is that these are businesses, they're making money. You know, a lot of money, a billions. lot, uh, billions, and I—it's a multi-billion-dollar industry, the dating industry. I—I I sometimes refer to it as big dating. You know, it's big dating <laughs> now, and I think I read—I—I'd have to check, but I think I read Tinder made eight hundred million dollars last year. You know, in in revenue or something, and so these companies are making a lot of money. And as you point out in the film, um, they have this business model where they kind of get you hooked. And then they start charging for these features. And they say, well, yeah. you can't swipe anymore unless you pay for this. And you can't, you know, Tinder is $9.99 a month. Tinder Plus, which is their full Monty package, is $9.99 a month for people under 30 and $19.99 a month for people over 30. I read this recently. I mean, I'd have to check, but that's what I read recently. That's a lot for an app, you know? Yeah. That's more than Netflix or something. So um, they're making money and... They have a responsibility to their users that I wouldn't say they're meeting yet. I'm hoping the film will raise this kind of conversation, particularly around sexual violence. You know, we're in the Me Too moment, and we're having this, well, this is, national it's, conversation it's about, well, let me just finish, about, about sexual assault. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet, and sexual assault and harassment, and yet the place where I, I would wager most women are experiencing sexual harassment in their daily lives is on dating apps. Well, that was what Mike. I was going to say to you is is there's such a juxtaposition in what you're saying. You're talking about the fact that you know there's all this sexual harassment on these apps. You have all these this this whole new culture that has arisen. You have these companies that are playing stupid, like Tinder, about their impact on it. And yet, at the same time, you have the Me Too movement, and it's like, aren't those two things coming up against each other? Aren't they kind of bleeding together? And or will they eventually bleed together? Where we, where the Me Too movement actually does push back on some of these things? Well, that's what my film is really, to a large degree, especially in, like I say, the third act of it. It's, that's really what we are addressing and what it's about. And yeah, the, the Me Too movement started. It had a name. It, there was a wave of feminism that was going on that I saw in the girls I was interviewing back even in 2014. But uh, it's really what there was like an explosion of, of uh, feminist awareness and consciousness and, you know, exchanging all kinds of things online. And this is one of the good things that I see in social media. And there's a there's a young woman in the film who says, um, I love her. Dylan is our character. And she says, you know, social media is enlightening a lot of women to the fact that, you know, I don't have to put up with your shit and I don't have to be you know, treated as a sex object for the rest of my life is I think the way she puts it. And yet, here we are on these dating apps, which I, I would argue objectify and um, 
sexualize women to a large degree. It's true that men get swiped on as well. Um, I think it makes everybody shallower to a certain degree. But I don't think you have to be a feminist scholar to see how the male gaze, as it's called, is privileged in this casino game. You know, so there's this whole hot or not aspect to it that um, doesn't get talked about. There's the sexual harassment that doesn't get talked about enough. And yeah, this is bumping up against the Me Too movement and the Me Too moment. We, like I said, this we were already basically we were already editing by the time Me Too had a name. But this is what this film is really is what you just said. It's like the collision of the Me Too moment and dating culture. So one of the things, and we, we only have a little time left, um, but I, uh, one of the questions I have is um, there's like all these surveys where people talk about, um, I think it's 80% of people who use dating apps say they're looking for a serious relationship. But isn't that kind of like someone who's saying, I'm going to quit drinking and they go get a job <laughs> as a bartender? It's like, d don't people realize it's... Uh, what is that Mark Twain that. said? I stop smoking cigarettes I, I, every morning. I'm bad at quoting people, but you know the quote where like, yeah, people give lip service to giving up their addictions. And I think that this is, again, I really want people to see this part in the film about addiction because it's really interesting to think about how how addicted we, we get to things and we don't even think about it. I smoked cigarettes in my 20s. And when I look back on it, I think, what the hell were you doing? Because you know, everybody, everybody smokes cigarettes. And at a certain point, yep. you know, it was just like, and we don't really go into like, what's all the messaging that's making me think it's okay to smoke cigarettes? Is it Marlon Brando? Is it Carrie Bradshaw? I don't know. But there I was smoking away and you could smoke in bars. At a certain point, I realized, you know, I would like to live past the age of whatever so i gotta stop doing this and these things are addictive and there's all kinds of marketing that's making me do it and i just you come to a point where you sort of confront all that i think in terms of men uh you know there there are women that there's a lot of discussion of women in the film because i think these apps you know there are issues with how how women are treated um but there are people who identify in other ways. As I said before, there's, we, I wanted to have different sexual orientations and gender identities, and I wanted to have a lot of voices, and I hope I've done that well. But I think that, let's just talk about heterosexual men for a minute, because, you know, as you say in the film, these apps were designed by guys, kind of for guys. You know? Yeah, they're 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 all technology by men for men, not thinking about the repercussions of women. Right, and Silicon Valley is notably, you know, it's 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 not me saying it. There's numerous articles, books now, Brotopia. You know, it's there's a it's a sexist it's a sexist industry. It's a sexist culture, and they have to do something about it. And and a lot of these, if you look at the pictures of all the CEOs of these companies, which we have in the film, they're all white guys. You know, um, for the most part, and so I don't see, I think that um, it's not as if dating apps created sexism or something. That would be a very reductive way of anyone looking at it or looking at my film. But I do think that, you know, trends that are sexist and sexist trends and, and misogyny that has always existed in courtship to a certain degree are actually exacerbated by these platforms. And at a certain point, you can't actually blame the guys who are using them of course everybody takes should take personal responsibility for what they're doing but i think that the 
way the technology is, is designed, it kind of, rather than make men, heterosexual men, think about these things, it kind of normalizes, encourages, and promotes these same sort of regrettable mm. things. So um, we do have, you know, we do have some young men in the film who talk very cavalierly about how they use these apps. And there's, you know, there's some fist bumps and there's some sort of gloating about things and there's some real degrading talk because I think it's important for people to see that that goes on. But in a certain way, you know, like I, like I said, I've interviewed te teenagers and young people for more than 20 years. At a certain point, I don't blame them. They're just growing up in this culture. They're, they're being formed by this culture. And they're being formed right now by technology. Their attitudes mm -hmm. and behaviors are being influenced and informed by technology. Well, and the other thing is they, they don't, you know, you and I can remember a time before these technologies where where you would go to meet up with your friends at the mall and you would make a plan to be there at 10 a.m. and that was it and there was no way to reach them if you couldn't and you would see someone who is a significant potential significant other you know in school or whatever it was and that was how you met them or in college or at a bar or something like that or even on the street and there was a conversation or your friend through a friend of a friend so I think for a lot of these people uh, um, this generation, they don't, they don't remember that because they didn't live it. Uh, and so maybe, you know, maybe it'll make a resurgence. Who knows that the, the people will put their phone down. But I think the problem, as you say, is, is that these things are so addictive. And I think technology in general is. And uh, and this is just another, another side of this. So okay, so I have time for for one last question. Um, what for you in all the people you spoke to, um, and you know, all of the reporting you've done. Uh, on this topic, what for you was the the biggest like oh wow moment that you remember? For the film, um, swiped, in when I was doing the film. Yeah. yeah. Um, I gotta say, you know, I I love all of the characters. We have these really great characters who are just so fresh and funny and alive and talk about. There's really there's a really great moment in the film that I love where a young man talks about. He's talking about he's gay, so he's talking about how to. He says how to bag a man on social media one hundred and one, and he just goes through the steps of how you get somebody to, uh, you know, notice you. And this is dating off Instagram. The film goes into also um, not just dating apps, but how the whole entire internet has created a different dating landscape. But I think you're the one in the film who says the entire internet is a dating app, you know, because yeah. you can like someone's tweets or you can like their Facebook posts or whatever. So there's a lot of things in the film that I, that I love. And I think that are, are really fun to watch and, uh, informative and insightful. But, not, but the thing that but not the, one, the yeah. wow moment for me was when Jonathan Bedeen started talking about this, um, I don't want to get it wrong, but I think it's called variable ratio schedule and how the swipe, which he invented, was based on different uh, classes he took and sociology classes and, and so forth in college, that it's, it's this idea about rewards and how you get someone to... It was one of those moments where you're sitting there as an interviewer and you're thinking, wow, are you really just... Okay, go ahead, say it. <laughs> yeah, he's basically admitting that he based the swipe on this 
in part on this experiment that B.F. Skinner did involving pigeons. And I I know we're running out of time, so I'll just leave it at that. But it's basically how you turn pigeons into gamblers. And I and we went. How you turn pigeons into gamblers? And we went and we found the controversial and some would say insidious B.F. Skinner. Um, you know, social psychologists whose ideas were all about how to control behavior. And so mm-hmm. we had our archival researcher go and look, and he found actual archival footage of this experiment of Skinner standing there with all these cages with pigeons pecking away, trying to get their food. Because the thing is, if you peck, if you give their food right away when they peck, they get bored. But if you withhold it, and you wait for them to give it to them, you know, in a in a random way, they get really excited and interested, and they keep pecking, 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 swiping, 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 swiping. You never know when you're going to get that match. Hmm. So That's when, when, yeah, so when he started <laughs> telling me this, I was just sort of like, I mean, he was very open about it, and he was just very, um, I think he just thought it was interesting to talk about mm-hmm. so and i'm not really sure he knew how it sounded at least how it sounded to me well i think that for a lot of these you know young men that start these things they don't think about the repercussions they just think about the exciting fact that they can type something into a screen and under a keyboard and 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 create a world and and uh and that someone uses their world and and, and lives in it and i think for them it's uh they don't think about the repercussions of it. So that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely one of the most important points that I think you made in the interview that we did. Was you you said something like, "Well, you know, they're like college students when they think of these things. They're still children. They're not thinking about how this is going to affect our entire society, which it has." Yep. Uh, all right. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This has been really fascinating. The movie, the documentary is called Swiped, Hooking Up in the Digital Age, and it's out on Monday, September 10th on HBO, and you can get it on HBO On Demand and Now and Go and all those other wonderful HBO places. Um, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been fascinating. Thank you, Nick. And if you watch the film, you can see Nick. <laughs> You should watch it just for that very reason. Just so you you're can great see in it. I got to tell you, my unofficial Thanks. focus group. I had these. Let me just tell you really quick. I know you got to go, but I had all these young people come in because I know I'm I'm 53. I know I'm 53. So I had all these young people who are like my friends or friends of our editor, who's a young guy, come in and watch the film periodically. I want to see what they think. And they all love Nick. They're all like, I like that guy. I like what that guy had to say. Yeah. I, I, that <laughs> He's guy cool. Who I, I, don't, I don't think. Sh- I don't think shaved for the interview, but thank you very much. I appreciate the props. Uh, Nancy, thanks so much, and good luck with the, uh, with the film. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks to my guests this week, Nancy Jo Sales and John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, and I am 100% sure you enjoyed this conversation, if you are still listening to this podcast so far in, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. And yes, there are a lot of great episodes from Inside the Hive. If you go back to the archives and look, there are a few bad ones, but mostly great ones. You can find all of these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave the greatest review for anything you've ever left in your whole entire life swipe right five stars great a plus rating would do business with them again while you're there thanks to the folks at cadence 13 for their production work and i will see you all next week dun, dun, dun.
America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.